There's a culture war going on in this country. We can no longer remain silent on the issues that affect us all. Decisions we make now will determine our future. But how do we engage with the culture in a way that honors Jesus? How do we rise above the noise to know what is right and what is true? It's time to bring God back into the conversation. It's time to reconnect. Here's Carmen. Welcome, friends. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is The Reconnect. We're here to speak the truth on the real issues of the day in real time. So how do we do that? How do we get God back into the conversation? How do we enter into the conversations of the day as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ? And how do we speak the mind of Christ on the matters of the day? Let's face it, people don't need just another piece of our mind. But what they do need is the peace of the mind of Christ. And so how do we give that to them? I had a conversation earlier with a friend who said, you know, I, I may actually know uh, how God uh, feels. Thinks. I mean, she's a student of the scriptures. She's a person who has uh, been soaking her life in, in, the, in the Bible. Uh, she's a person who's cultivated intimacy with God. And yet, and yet she acknowledges that doesn't always mean that when she turns to the conversations of the day, to the issues of the day, to real people dealing with real stuff in the world today, that she necessarily knows how to frame the conversation uh, in a way that uh, both speaks the truth and honors Jesus and, um, and maybe doesn't offend the other person. And so <laughs> it's, a, it's a challenging thing to enter into the conversations of the day, uh, being people of truth and yet being people who are also able to communicate with others in such a way um, that God is able to actually reach into their life and touch them. And so I'm just going to continue to encourage you to do that every day. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. It is your identity. uh, And you are literally possessed of his spirit. And so uh, simply make yourself available to him moment by moment and uh, and allow God to speak through you into the lives of others. Uh, it's It's a joy and a calling. All right, I invite you to connect with me online at reconnectwithcarmen.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our email newsletter. Uh, I would highly recommend that you do that today, particularly if you are in our WTLN or WAVA listening areas. You need to go to reconnectwithcarmen.com and sign up for our email newsletter so that after today, uh, you will um, get information about when we are uh, back on the air in a different format because today is the last live day for you in those listening areas. You can continue the conversation with us at reconnectwithcarmen.com and we look forward uh, to continuing to address the headlines and issues of the day and equip you to bring God back into every conversation. Facebook is also a great place to connect with the Reconnect and you can always communicate with me on Twitter. I'm at Carmen LaBerge. All right, I want to uh, lift up... Um, Something today that uh, it's from the headlines, but it's from the tech section of the Wall Street Journal. And so it may not be um, something that you read. <laughs> just going to just going to guess there. Not a lot of people reading. Well, there may be a whole lot of people reading the tech section of the Wall Street Journal. I'll admit to you uh, that I'm not often reading the tech section of the Wall Street Journal. But here you go. This is from November the 16th. Uh, Jack Nikas is the um, is the journalist here. The headline is. Google has picked an answer for you. Too bad, it's often wrong. Here's the lead. Google became the the world's go-to source of information by ranking billions of links from millions of sources. Now for many queries, the internet giant is presenting itself as the authority on truth. Now, that is probably what made this pop um, for me. Anyone who wants to declare themselves the authority on truth is uh, marching around, stomping around in territory that I think belongs exclusively to the Lord our God. So uh, I'll continue reading. Uh, the internet giant is presenting itself as the authority on truth by promoting a single search result as the answer. So here are two things that are happening. Number one, Google's presenting itself as the authority on the truth the go-to source for the answer to every question under heaven. But what's offensive, apparently, to people is that Google's only presenting one answer. It's not that Google is presenting an answer. It's that Google is presenting an answer as the answer. And so um, uh, this leads us into a conversation about what is truth, who can be trusted to tell us the truth, um, whether or not Google has become the god of our of our age, um, and and what it means to turn to God as the authority uh, for what is good and beautiful and true. All right, so reading on, just to let you know a little bit more about what's going on in this particular story, 
Uh, Jack Nikas tells us sometimes Google's response depends on how a question is asked. So you might ask, should abortion be legal? Or you could ask, should abortion be illegal? Depending on which way you ask that question, uh, it, it, Google is going to return to you a different answer. And when you start um, asking should or should not questions, when you start asking value-laden uh, questions, Google is actually returning to you value-laden answers. So who gets to be the arbiter of truth when we're talking about life and the legality or the morality of things like abortion? Well, uh, Google's algorithms are only as good uh, as, you know, as the people who wrote them can make them to be. And so Google's algorithms are constantly being refined. Now, one of the things that's going on right now is that Google is refining out uh, algorithms that would return answers for anything related to uh, politics or religion in terms of answering moral questions of the day. So the company recently changed its algorithm to limit these featured snippets, these, these single answer um, uh, returns on what are considered sensitive topics such as religion or politics. Well, the question then is, does abortion pop as a political or religious issue? No, in fact, it does not. Abortion is considered a healthcare issue these days. Uh, and so um, uh, the should or should not uh, answer to the question is still prompts an answer in terms of Google's algorithms. So uh, here's, here's really what's um, I think of concern to me. First of all, the data shows that Google is now the most trusted source of information. The most trusted source of information. When people are asked, uh, to rank trusted sources of information, Google returns as number one. Now, Google says, through uh, its spokesperson, uh, that the company's goal is not to do the thinking for users, but to help you find relevant information quickly and easily. So they're only trying to be relevant. They're not trying to do your thinking for you. However, um, many people consider them the most trusted source of information, which means people are relying on Google to do their thinking for them. And they are then just uh, quoting whatever it is that Google tells them is the truth. So this gets us to the question or the conversation about source and sourcing. And who do you rely on as your source for the truth? It's one thing to rely on, uh, you know, on Google or Wikipedia or somebody else for information. Uh, that might be relevant, that might be timely, that might be um, crowdsourced. It's another thing to rely on God, uh, who is truth, to lead you into all truth and to reveal the truth to you. Uh, and so the question of trustworthiness and, uh, and truth is one that I think we need to be well-equipped to deal with and answer and handle in the culture today, particularly in what we have often described as a post-truth culture. So let me just remind you that in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 8, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In John 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so um, I could go on and on. There's actually uh, more than 100 Bible verses that are directly and specifically related to the truth, the nature of God as true and truthful and trustworthy the call to humanity to put our trust in the Lord our God and to follow Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life, relying upon the Holy Spirit um, who is truth itself. And so um, I would just encourage you as you are interacting with Google to ask yourself the question, am I, am I relying on Google to do my thinking for me? Or am I relying uh, on it simply to return to me um, some information about what might be out there in terms of, of 
uh, current relevant subject matter related to my question. So let's just imagine for a moment, again, I'm going to return here briefly to the article because I want to highlight for you um, some of the misinformation and uh, and the, the, the flat out falsehoods that uh, can be returned. So let's just imagine that you queried, you asked the question, why are Komodo dragons endangered? That's the question that you type into your little Google search box. The featured answer was volcanoes, fire, and tourism. The source? Well, if you bothered to click through to the source, you would have discovered it was a Canadian elementary school student's report posted online. Because after all, there's very little information out there about why Komodo dragons are endangered, seeing as Komodo dragons are not in fact endangered. Where is the truth in all of that? Well, the truth is the Google algorithm went and searched out why are Komodo dragons endangered and found that an elementary school student in Canada speculated it's because of and tourism. All right, so how, um, how is this relevant to us? Well, people actually believe that if Google says it, it must be true. When in fact, that is simply not true. And so my encouragement to you is to evaluate who you trust as the source of information and your source of truth. And then once you have apprehended the truth, and I'm going to recommend that you use God as your source for that and the Bible uh, as your source material uh, and Jesus Christ as the one who is the way and the truth and the life and the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth. Uh, and once you have apprehended all of that, then I'm going to encourage you to turn and speak the truth into the world that God so loves. Bring God back into literally every conversation. All right, so here's a conversation that God really needs to be in. It is about cyberbullying. So cyberbullying uh, is not a new phenomenon. Cy cyberbullying um, is sadly uh, the manifestation of just old-fashioned bullying, playground bullying, uh, on the new playground, which is social media. So cyberbullying is something that we have become aware of uh, among adults even, uh, and, uh, and yet we recognize that it is something that uh, is a growing trend among teens and teenagers. So this particular issue of cyberbullying is highlighted uh, when kids commit suicide and the, and the evidence shows that um, some of that was because of online harassment. So let me just tell you in advance, that's what this particular issue is about. There's a cyberbullying trend. Teens are anonymously targeting themselves online. That's right, you heard me right. Teenagers, this is USA Today reporting that cyberbullying has a new ch chilling trend. Teens anonymously targeting themselves online. Here's the lead. Cyberbullying is not a new phenomenon, but an alarming number of teenagers are anonymously posting mean things online about themselves. About 6% of kids ages 12 to 17 have bullied themselves digitally, according to research. Now, first of all, what percentage of kids uh, ages 12 to 17 do you imagine are actively engaged in social media? That's a question that you have to ask yourself. Well, 73% of kids in this age band now have a smartphone. So we're talking about a very high percentage of kids in this age band who have a smartphone, and then 6% of that group um, is is now bullying themselves digitally. Now this is this is self-harming activity that is all online and all out of the view of most adults, taking place uh, in apps and in environments where kids only engage with other kids. So um, when we turn to this concept of digital self-harm and and how researchers even became aware of it. There was a tragic story um, surrounding the death of Hannah Smith. She was a 14-year-old from Leicestershire, England, um, and she hanged herself after months of apparent online harassment. Um, and it was only after her death when um, officials began actually um, combing the social media site 
where uh, users were asking each other anonymous questions, that they found that 98% of the messages that were sent to Hannah Smith actually came from her own computer. She literally bullied herself to the point of death. So this digital self-harm um, is, uh, is, is on the rise. And it is um, notably, researchers believe, notably um, linked to both self-harm uh, in terms of physical self-harm and suicidal ideation and potentially suicide attempts. So researchers are concerned that the connection between physical self-harm and suicide that exists, um, you know, in the in the real world, uh, is going to have a counterpart in this digital self-harming um, trend and age. So the article then notes that teen suicide rates have been steadily climbing over the past decade, and suicide rates for girls ages 15 to 19 actually doubled from 2007 to 2015, reaching its highest point in 40 years, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, why is that? Well, suicide is certainly um, attached to depression, and depression rises as social media use rises. And so when we look at the rise of access to smartphones, and we look at the rise of social media in general, and we look at the, the rapid rise of social media use among teenagers, and then we look at the added component of cyberbullying, and now this trend of self-harm um, in terms of uh, digital self-harm, where we have this, what can only just be described as a toxic mix uh, of things actively working against our kids. And so I, I really am going to call upon uh, every adult who's listening to consider um, engaging young people directly on this subject. Engage them directly on this subject. Find out what apps they're using. Ask them to introduce you to those apps. Ask them to show you how kids are engaging with each other. Become a student of your child today. Become a student of your grandchild today. Um, don't tell them you got to turn off that, you know, you got to, you got to turn it off. Don't, don't immediately make it the bad guy. Ha have them walk you into the world that they're living in and then stand there with them and point out to them how destructive those behaviors are and why those behaviors concern you. Um, and if, as long as you keep the focus on a third party, your kid is not likely to get terribly defensive about it. All right. You're going to walk alongside them and you're going to equip them um, to actually function in the world uh, that demands their attention right now. Now, I am also going to argue that we have got to be regaining control um, of the time that our kids spend, particularly unsupervised, in social media environments. Uh, research shows that kids are spending like 9 to 12 to sometimes 16 hours a day actively engaged. Now, let me just do the math on that for you. A, a typical 24-hour period of time has 24 hours in it. And so if you're spending 16 of those hours actively engaged in social media, that literally means that every waking hour you are, you, you are tethered to social media. That, that's just, this is sickening. If it's 12 hours, it's bad. If it's eight hours, it's a full third of your time. And so you got to think about what is, you know, what is necessary in the world today, what is appropriate, um, and then what is too much. And how are you going to actively prepare your kid uh, to, to do that? Well, number one, you're going to have to model it yourself. OK, so in order if we want to if we want our kids to get control um, of their behavior on social media and we want them to limit their time on it because it's a depressive environment that produces unhappiness and leads to depression and ultimately to suicidal ideation and suicide. Like if you want to protect your kid from that, then you're going to have to model your own discipline related to social media. Uh, when do you turn it off? Do you turn it off when you hit the door after work? Do you turn it, uh, do you not turn it back on until, uh, you, you know, I, I'm not even going to say until you're out of the driveway because that's probably not a safe place to be doing your social media either. You, you get my point, right? 
Um, are we modeling it as adults? Are we modeling it as parents? And then are we helping our kids to see that uh, in order for them to uh, to actually engage, they gotta they gotta engage in person. We gotta actually have real relationships, not just online friendships, not just uh, not just followers online. We gotta have real relationships. But let me speak here just directly for a moment to any um, person in this age group who might be listening. This 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 12 to 17 year old crowd. Um, I would even say, you know, to those who are older than that, who are um, finding their primary identity online, finding their primary identity and their their primary meaning in social media environments instead of um, out here in the real world uh, of of human interaction. Let me just say, first of all, um, in a very in as candid a way as I can, you are precious and you are irreplaceable. You are valued and you are valuable. You are beloved of God, and you are loved by people right here. The fact that you're not perfect simply makes you human. Okay, perfection is, is not the standard of real life, nor real human relationships. It is, it is the standard of who God is, and he calls us to be holy as he is holy, but he knows that we're human. And he actually resolved the sin problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, like we're all in this mess together. God resolves that problem in Jesus Christ, but he does not expect us in the midst of that to live perfect lives here and now. He knows that moment by moment we need uh, his presence and his power and his companionship and his guidance and his love and his grace and his mercy. God knows it and he still loves you. I want you to give God a chance to redeem whatever it is about your life um, that you think is so far off the mark um, that you would think about bullying or harming yourself in a social media environment or in, in the physical world. I want you to consider giving God a chance to redeem that. And I want you to consider um, having a conversation with somebody who knows God Consider having a conversation with somebody who you know who knows God. Give God the time. Give God the chance. Allow for the conversation where you can be affirmed as precious and irreplaceable and valued and valuable and loved. And where you can experience what it is like to be forgiven and to be blessed and to be in community with a people who know that we are sinners, but who also know that we are saved. Not just saved from uh, the penalty of sin and death, but saved from the power of sin in, in this life. You can live a redeemed life of joy and purpose, knowing from whence you have come and knowing to whom you are called. You can live a redeemed life. And I would invite you to give God a chance through the people who know him, right, to share with you um, what God is like and what God knows you're like as his beloved child. So, um, friends, if you're an adult, I want you to reach out to a young person. I want you to ask them intentionally about the world that they're living, living in online and what it's like and, and I want you to in, encourage those Christian kids to uh, be light in the darkness, but I also want you as an adult to protect them from the darkness. Uh, and after the break, we're going to have a conversation with Chap Bettis. We talked with Chap before about his book, The Disciple-Making Parent, a comprehensive guidebook for raising your children to love and follow Jesus Christ. He's actually got a whole chapter on this social media uh, conversation. Today, we're going to talk with him about um, the Disciple-Making Parent's Donut Date Journal. That's right, uh, Donut Date, 70 Questions to Connect to Your Child's Heart. So that's right after the break. All right, friends, The Reconnect is a listener-supported ministry by people just like you. So if this program is meaningful to you, please visit us online at reconnectwithcarmen.com. Sign up for our email list. And if you're in a position to do so, please financially support the ministry today. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is The Reconnect. We'll be right back.
I'm Carmen LeBird. This is The Reconnect. Indeed, God is the only king forever. Jesus is the only king eternal. We're here seeking to put him in his place, back where he belongs, right in the middle of every conversation. So we're talking about what people are talking about. We're seeking to equip you to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. I invite you to connect with me online at reconnectwithcarmen.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can always let me know what you're thinking about. I'm on Twitter at Carmen LaBerge. All right, while you're at the website, I would encourage you to sign up for our email list. You will receive timely equipping resources designed to help you reconnect the eternal with the everyday and bring God back into the conversation in ways that honor Jesus. And for those of you in our WAVA and WTLN listening areas, today is our sign-off with you and so please go to reconnectwithcarmen.com so you will know how to continue to find uh, the show and related information all right back with us today we have chap bettas he is the executive director of the apollos project a ministry devoted to helping parents disciple their children we all need help with that you can check out what they've got for you at theapollosproject.com chap has been a pastor in new england for the past 25 years he's the author of Evangelism for the Tongue-Tied, The Fearless Apologetics Curriculum, The Disciple-Making Parent, Raising Your Children to Love and Follow Jesus Christ, and his latest is The Donut Date Journal. You can check it all out at chapbettis.com, and he's on Twitter at chapbettis. Chap, welcome back to The Reconnect. Hey, thank you very much, Carmen. Good to talk to you again. All right, so um, just before the break, uh, we were actually uh, having a conversation here about the rise of cyberbullying um, uh, among teenagers, and not just cyberbullying, but apparently cyberbullying that teenagers are now uh, doing to themselves. So this uh, targeting themselves online with this anonymous cyberbullying. Um, and it reminded me that you have a whole chapter in The Disciple-Making Parent on the subject of pleasing God with media and the arts um, and how we as parents need to, um, need to be the people who are modeling uh, how to master social media ourselves and then, uh, and then really being very, very intentional about how we both allow, instruct, and equip our kids um, to enter into that. Do you want to say anything about that before we move on to the Donut Date Journal? Well, actually, I think they're connected because, um, on the one hand, we, we need to model our own uh, media use. But on the other hand, uh, part, we can get so busy that we're not actually getting beneath the surface. And so we don't know what things are going through. And so it actually ties right into um, the Donut Date Journal, just this idea of having dates where we're either, on the one hand, soliciting, talking to them, saying, what are the stresses, what's going on in your life? And then, and then on the other side, uh, sometimes when you've got that, that ballast of the relationship, you know, look them in the eye and being able to ask, are, you know, are you tempted this way? I heard this on listening to the, you know, the, the, the show today, The Reconnect, and this came up, do you ever have this temptation? And so that's going to happen. Hmm. Uh, not in passing as you come in from sports practice in the kitchen, but but as you've had some intentional time. So I think actually it's related. 
All right. So one of the things I totally love about the Donut Date Journal is that it is um, it's small. Like it's it's physically it's not intimidating. It's physically designed to act to actually um, tangibly equip a parent to engage their child in this way. So you specifically uh, did this with your daughters. Um, just talk with us about the idea behind the Donut Date Journal um, and just practically what you're advocating for. Well, as a, so I have four children. They're now 26 to 20. And uh, when they were young, uh, I was a busy pastor and a busy parent with my wife. And uh, uh, But I know that it's easy to sort of herd the, herd the crowd of four, two years apart, uh, and not really connect to their hearts, not know what's going on. And so so I think it was her idea, actually, about taking them out one at a time, one-on-one, for a donut date. So I would have breakfast dates or breakfast meetings with other men as a pastor, but uh, why not do that with your own kids? And uh, and so we would go out, and, um, you know, probably maybe every two weeks I'd take one out. So it's not like it was this was, you know, four kids every week, but just just uh, work them into the rotation, and believe me, they knew whose turn it was. <laughs> and uh, we'd just go out, we'd get a donut, uh, coffee, I'd get coffee, they'd get a some sort of milk, and then I'd ask questions, just like we are talking about before, and then I would write down their answers in a journal, really with the idea that someday that would be a keepsake um, that they could have, and also for me as a dad, just to track the progress. So, um, And then what I found out, really, by putting those deposits in early, is that, that the, uh, you know, the bank account was full enough so that as we were older... Uh, as we hit rough times, especially with my guys, we could we could go out and, and talk about some of these things. So, and uh, so I just thought about I realized that how how um, really for the return on the investment it was a very inexpensive date, forty five minutes, not a lot of time, and it just paid off huge dividends for our relationship. Um, so, knowing that and. Uh, as part of the disciple-making parent, having parents ask me, what are some specific things uh, I can do? Um, I came up, I said, here, let me create really what I did and put it in a booklet form, uh, which is, is coming up with 70 questions here to connect to your child's heart and a place to write down their answers over the years. And it's just fun to see how those change over the years. So um, so anyway, yeah, that's, that's okay, so, how it came about. Yeah, so let me describe... Let me describe to people what it looks like, because um, I think that when when you shared the idea with me, um, I immediately uh, embraced the idea. But until I actually opened the journal, I, I didn't I didn't quite see what you were talking about. And so let me just describe to people that at the top of the page, there's a question. And then underneath that, um, there's four different um, sections of the page where, you know, ostensibly you would repeat that question four times over the course of a child's life in your con- ongoing conversation with them as, you know, as over the course of a number of years, you're you're cycling through these, these 70 questions. So it's not like uh, a deck of 70 cards where, you know, once I work my way through it, you know, I'm sort of once and done um, because a, a child's favorite food is different when they're four than when they're 14 um, and who their friends are changes pretty rapidly um, in, you know, in terms of their own social development and who they're hanging out with. I love the part where, you know, you finally get to the place where, you know, you're like, well, you know, if you were going to talk to a boy, like who might that be? Like I, that's a really good question to ask of a girl um, when she's little and then really, really important to ask as she's getting older. Like how am I going to um, distill that information out of her uh, in such a way that is non-threatening? Well, it's going to be a question that she's heard now repeated four times before she's 16. And so I just, I love that. I love the way that you put it together. Um, it's totally non-threatening. It produces real conversation. And I love that it chronicles the growth and development of the person over time. It's just so sweet. Well, thanks. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's vitally important. And I think, I think well, as you talked about for young kids, you start, um, you know, who are your closest friends? What do you like about them? And it's just, it's, it was fun for one of my daughters to look back over that uh, over time. And yet, and, and, and yet it's also, um, you know, what you're doing is setting 
the kids up so you still got this habit so that when when things happen as teenage years it doesn't seem doesn't seem strange to have these conversations well and i'm guessing that when you go on one of these dates the phones stay in the car yeah and and it's vital you know i didn't have that problem when my kids were young thankfully but i see that and in fact the questions help too because for example i was just out this morning uh breakfast uh with my son who's who's now 24 but noticing that this this guy was was had taken his daughter to breakfast but he was not engaging her you know so on the one hand yay for spending some time with your with your daughter on the other hand like yeah engage her and so yeah that's absolutely you putting the phone away because really what you're communicating is is that you're you are the most important thing to me and and my daughter said to me um as she wrote in the the forward you know you're really treat you're 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 helping your daughter understand how a man ought to relate to a woman which boy oh boy with the news this day uh, the today really needs to needs to come across to our our girls our young girls yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about that in just a second. Let me remind people that this conversation is with Chap Bettis. Uh, you can check out what he does at the Apollos Project at theapollosproject.com. The book we're talking about today is the Donut Date Journal, um, and you can you can reach Chap at chapbettis.com and on Twitter at Chap Bettis. Um, Chap, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the reality of what girls are dealing with um, as well, and, and you know what what families are dealing with as mature grown women are many of them for the first time revealing um the wounds and the scars that they experienced as very young people um and in a in a culture that uh i don't even know quite how to describe it is so confused about gender and sexuality and the appropriate um, place of 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 relationships between men and women that uh, we're just dealing with a culture-wide phenomenon now of this Me Too in terms of sexual harassment um, and and even sexual abuse. Talk with us about what kinds of questions and how early you start talking with your daughters um, about how they should be treated. Now, you're doing it first by modeling it. I get that. But when do those conversations begin? Oh, boy. Well, I mean that goes back even as as you know early, when they're when they're children and uh, young children and as a as a mom you you know you, you say to your your daughters you know these are your private parts and you know only mom and dad and and the doctor can see those so I mean that goes early there and and again it's the trusting relationship again assuming in a sense assuming the worst or inoculating in the sense of saying look this this can happen uh you know unfortunately there, there are people out there is has anything like this ever happened to you if anyone ever does so the whole idea of getting ahead of the curve um you and you are can always tell uh mom or dad anything um and you're you so i think as a parent you're assuming in a sense we're seeing how wicked the world is and it's coming out and we need to assume that yes there are dangers out there that we want to properly inoculate our children for in, in the sense that we say um let's talk about that and so so whether it's the you know you know whether it's my donut date journal or you, you don't really even need that but if you have a heart level relationship with your kids um where you can you say so you can tell you can tell us anything. Yeah. Hey, chap. Um, this question occurs to me um, as we're talking. You know, you were a pastor. Five years. Let's talk about the church as the household of God, um, and let's talk about girls that are growing up in single parent homes, particularly you know where the only other person really in their life is their mom. Um, there's a there's a father void there. Um, and, and that has dramatic effects throughout the life of that girl and into her adulthood and all of her future relationships. Is there a place for the church um, in terms of uh, men in the church providing maybe this kind of surrogate dad-daughter donut date formula? Would that work? 
Oh, boy. I, that You get into those tricky things where now you have a man with a woman who's not a, a girl who's not her daughter, his daughter. I would feel uncomfortable with that personally as the man. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would love to think about how that could occur because the church should be the place where uh, the daughter, the son of a single, a single mom sees godly, um, you know, men protecting women, treating women with respect. And a single mom is able to point out, and, and you know, people who are, uh, e- even though they're growing up in a home that's perhaps marred by sin, able to say, well, this, this home, you know, they're marred by sin too, but at least you're able to see that, that a, a man can treat a woman with respect uh, and there's hope for marriage. And I would say to the moms, I, I always say this when I talk about the disciple-making parent, you know, we talk about Timothy growing up in a second, he was a second-generation Christian, but his home, though it doesn't seem like it was a single mom home, his home was split, where the mother was a believer and the father was not. So God's grace reaches in. Uh, we, we don't need a little house on the prairie home to pass the gospel to our kids. But on the other hand, that's exactly what the church is. And that's, uh, you know, I think I think as a single mom, if she goes to the pastor and says, how, how can we do this? So whether it's for guys bringing the bringing the the, the guys perhaps on a men's retreat or or something like that, but yeah, today in today's day and age, balancing how can a, a, a young woman see a godly home um, without that one-on-one time? I think I think another obvious thing would just be hospitality, just using for mm-hmm. for intact mm-hmm. families to invite uh, other families uh, over. And the purpose, A, is to minister, you know, minister to the single mom who's stressed out of her mind. But also, you're, you're, you're showing something to the kids. I, I still remember that growing up, looking at godly families in my church and saying, I want my family to be like that uh, when I grow up. So we don't, we don't realize how much our kids are studying us. When we're small, when we're small, they're, they're you know, absorbing our example as they're older, they're deciding, who do I want to be like? And so that's, that's definitely, hospitality is definitely a way uh, the Church can model that. All right, friends, my guest is Chap Bettis. Uh, we are talking about the Donut Date Journal. You can te- check it out at chapbettis.com. You can also obviously find the book on Amazon. Uh, along, uh, along with it, I highly recommend The Disciple-Making Parent, a comprehensive guidebook for raising your children to love and follow Jesus Christ. Um, and you can reach back on the reconnectwithcarmen.com um, for the earlier conversation that I had with Chap uh, about that particular book. Hey, Chap, before we let you go today, what kind of feedback uh, have you received um, on on the on the donut date journal? It, I've been blown away at how uh, positive people have been. Yes, this help this helps me do something I want to do. I want to connect with my kids, and uh, uh, you're helping me do that. And uh, have, I've had dads sort of you know tweet their picture at me, and so that they could say they're doing that with their kids. And here it's funny. Here's the other thing. That it prompted. I have I've had uh, several moms reach out to me and say their kids said to them, "Where's my journal where I get to ask you questions?" And so I'm actually working on that now uh, for the child to uh, you know to ask ask their parent about uh, their childhood. And so it's just uh, prompting fun conversations. So lots of positive feedback. Okay, so that one you have to write in such a way that the 50-year-old child can go ask the 80-year-old uh, parent as well, because, you know, well, that's, that's right? Actually, we didn't... Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I want to do, because, you know, I, I, rem- I know my, my mom's story, but if, could you, if you ask me to put it in order, I'm not sure I could do it. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. All right. Oh, I love it. All right, Chap. Well, I want uh, I want a copy of that one too when it comes out. Okay. All right, uh, friends. It's it's Chap Bettis. Uh, the don- the book we're talking about today is the Donut Date Journal, but it's a part of the disciple making parent process, and so it's the disciple making parents 
Donut Date Journal, a compliment to the Disciple-Making Parent Curriculum, which is a comprehensive guidebook for raising your children to love and follow Jesus Christ. Check it all out at chapbettis.com. Go to Amazon uh, if you want to just get it directly. All right, Chap, hey, thanks so much for what you're doing, for who you are, and for the excellent resources you're producing for parents who want to connect with their kids. Carmen, it's good to, good to talk to you. Always, always a joy. Thank you so much. All right, friends, at this point in the show, we, we like to go below the fold and lift up stories and make connections designed to help you start and engage with others in conversations that may not initially appear to be about God, but where the introduction of eternal principles can change not only the conversation, but a course of another person's thinking and potentially their living. So I know that you have heard this because it has been, I mean, we I actually heard it on the radio yesterday on a Christian music station in that like 10 seconds that they get to do a news item. And this was the news item. And then it was followed by this very dramatic uh, music of dun, dun, dun. Like it was, it was kind of uh, humorous. All right. So here's the headline. Leonardo da Vinci painting sells for $450.3 million shattering auction highs. So this is uh, Dateline um, uh, China. I would read the city to you, except I can't read Chinese letters, which is the way the New York Times actually um, writes it here. So the New York Times and everybody else is reporting that uh, after 19 minutes of dueling with four bidders on the telephone and one in the room, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Salvador Mundi sold on Wednesday night for $450.3 million shattering the high for any work of art sold at auction. It's important to know that Salvatore Mundi actually translates into Christ as Savior of the World. So this is da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci's Christ as Savior of the World um, piece of artwork. The New York Times says there were gasps throughout the sale as the bids climbed by tens of millions up to 225 million and then by fives to 260 million, and then by twos. Now, let me just tell you, it's a really long trip from 260 million to 450 million by twos. That's a good little exercise for you to do with a child in the car right now. That'd be 262, 264, 266, 268. It's going to take you a while to get up to 450. And so what actually happened is uh, uh, towards the end of the 19 minutes, um, the, the buyer... Um, actually made two what are described as big jumps to shake off one last rival bidder. Okay, so um, uh, why am I sharing this with you? Well, this particular um, this particular painting uh, was viewed by more than 27,000 people who lined up at pre-auction viewings in Hong Kong, London, San Francisco, and New York just to get a glimpse of the Christ as Savior of the World, Da Vinci. This is a piece of artwork that, in terms of its its quality, oil on panel, is not actually considered all that great. Um, it was owned by a Swiss art dealer and businessman who uh, sold it to a Russian family trust of a Russian billionaire collector who is the one who sold it, presumably, to a Chinese billionaire uh, just the other night. So why um, are people who are secular at best and atheist, most probably, interested in a painting of Christ the Savior? Let's just ask ourselves that. Why the world thinks this is valuable? It's actually, uh, in terms of its much restored damaged condition, as it's described, um, not particularly good. Uh, and... In terms of uh, his defeat in buying it, the guy that was presumed to end up with it, which is Lu, I won't pronounce it correctly. He's a Chinese billionaire who co-founded with his wife the Long Museum in Shanghai. Uh, he said of this on social media afterwards, Da Vinci's savior sold for 400 million U.S. dollars. Congratulations to the buyer. I would like to correct that here and now. Da Vinci's savior was not sold for 400 million U.S. dollars. Da Vinci's savior was sold for a handful of silver pieces 2,000 years ago and nailed to a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. Da Vinci's savior is not the one uh, on the uh, oil on panel. Da Vinci's savior is the savior Jesus Christ, the savior of 
us one and all. So here's what I have to say about it from a Christian worldview. This is a good conversation about the relative value of things and the absolute value of people. And yes, you have been bought with a price. And the price God paid for you was Jesus himself. You are an image bearer of the Lord our God, and in you, God's spirit is pleased to dwell. So how much more value are you to God than a painted image, even that of his son? All right, friends, this is The Reconnect. I'm Carmen LaBurge. You can connect with me online at reconnectwithcarmen.com. Sign up for the podcast, donate to the ministry, and share today's show with someone new. For those of you listening on WAVA and WTLN, have a great day, and God bless. The Reconnect is brought to you by the Presbyterian Lay Committee. To continue the conversation and become part of the Reconnect community, visit reconnectwithcarmen.com.